Our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 34 and Matthew 5, 10 and 11. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes it boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, but those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Matthew 5, 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is the word of the Lord. We're studying Peter's first letter. Uh, we are in the third chapter, and we're going to be looking today at verses 8 through 18, but not all of them. So let me uh, explain what I mean by that. Uh, this is a very compact, dense, and uh, in verses 19 and following, difficult part of the New Testament, not just this epistle. And uh, also we will find in verse 15 the familiar call to be prepared to make a defense of the hope that we have. And uh, so I would like and plan uh, next week to look at those verses concerning uh, our being prepared to make a defense of our faith. And then the following week at the following verses, verses 19 and on, uh, which I won't read today, even though verse 18 is not a full stop. I'm going to make it a full stop because what follows is a rather perplexing passage uh, from which the early church uh, believed that between his death and resurrection, Jesus had descended to the place of the dead, descended to hell, and there preached the gospel to, as Peter says, spirits in prison. 
lot of controversy over exactly what Peter meant, and we'll talk about that hopefully two weeks from now, but that's where the part of the creed that says he descended into hell comes from. Uh, all of that is to say, don't be looking for me to talk about any of that today. I wanna focus on the, the parts, uh, the, the majority of the passage, which is describing for us the good life. So I would ask you to think for a moment about what is your idea of the good life. Um, Connie is away out of town, so I was unsupervised yesterday and uh, wasted uh, a certain amount of time trying to find certain uh, uh, YouTube things that I wanted to see, but something popped up that caught my eye. It said La Dolce Vita, uh, the, uh, uh, depending on how you translate that, the, the tasty life, the, it, in effect, it's not literally the good life, but the good life. Uh, it wasn't the movie that Fellini did back in the 60s, but it was rather a travelogue of Italy, and I love Italy, so I watched this, and it was showing you know, the, Italy's beautiful landscape and the spectacular buildings that have been built down through the ages, the great architectural gems. It took you up to Milan to where, to a uh, tailor where you could get the finest bespoke suit. Uh, it took you up to the, to the Ferrari, almost said Lamborghini, sorry, the Ferrari uh, factory and on up to Lake Como, beautiful lakes surrounded by these spectacular mansions. The good life or so it would seem. And it's good to love beauty. One of the ways that God has made us in his image, he has made us to respond to the good and the true and the beautiful. And so to appreciate beautiful art, beautiful buildings, beautiful landscape, beautiful music, beautiful people, God made us that way, that's okay. But is that what constitutes the good life? And I realized, even as I watched and thought, ooh, I'd love to go there. Oh, I wonder how much that suit costs. I mean, all that silly stuff for an old man or for a young man to do. I'm thinking at the same time about this text and about what we're being told here about what constitutes the good life. Now, before I read it, let me come at it a slightly different way, but again, a context in which we need to hear it. I don't know how Donald Trump and Joe Biden got my phone number, but I keep getting texts from them both. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that's true of any of you. Actually, I've had several from Donald Trump inviting me to Mar-a-Lago and telling me he's very interested in what I'm thinking. Um, am I the only one who's been getting these, these? Well, you know, we're just covered with these things, but what strikes me as you listen to us being pushed and pulled once again. It, the Democrats are telling us that if, and this is not about the election, don't worry, I'm not going there, but Democrats tell us if Trump is elected, it's the end of democracy. This is a vote for democracy. He's going to set himself up as a dictator. And the Republicans tell us if Biden is elected again, it's gonna be the end of constitutional government as we know it. The Supreme Court is going to be uh, increased, the, the Electoral College gotten rid of, filibuster done in with, I mean, both. And then I get all these similar messages from what used to be Christian 
organizations that still pretend to be, but are basically all about the same stuff. And everybody trying to raise money by telling me whom I need to be afraid of. That is how we are manipulated today. Everybody is telling us why we need to be afraid of the other guys. And if there's one clear message from the Bible, what God constantly says to his people, Old Testament and New, it is this. Fear not. Fear not. In this description that I'm about to read of the good life, remember that Peter is writing to people facing persecution. He will go on to tell them in the next chapter, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that is coming to you as if it were something strange. Don't be afraid of it. Rejoice. That's a different message than we get. And he will quote extensively from Psalm 34, which Rachel read to us for our first lesson. And you might say, yeah, well, David can talk about not being afraid and about the good life. Look at him, king, all his power. Do you know when David wrote that psalm? Look at the superscription over it. He wrote it when he was on the run for his life from King Saul, and he'd made the spectacularly bad decision, having been the general who led Israel against the Philistines, he had decided to run to a Philistine city, the city of Gath. He gets inside and realizes, this was really stupid. I'm in danger here. They know who I am. And the king is saying, is that David who fought against us? And so he does, you know, the, the only thing he could think of at the moment, he pretends to be crazy. And he walks around pretending to write on the walls and he lets spit dribble down from his chin and the king says, ha, don't need to be afraid of this guy. Uh, you know, I've got enough crazy guys here. So David's able to escape and he goes to the cave of Adullam where he hides out and gathers all the misfits who gathered to him. And he writes this psalm that Peter quotes and it's his description, God speaking through him to us of the good life here the word of the Lord, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Wouldn't it be marvelous if at the next political debate, the moderator, just before the debate started, say, here are your instructions. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes this from Psalm 34. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, that's where I get that he's describing the good life. You want to love life? You want to see good days? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, the word of the Lord. He's describing the good life to people in deep trouble. And Christians in the United States need to hear it. So many of our leaders who I think have forfeited their leadership through their behavior the past few years, talking about Christian leaders, have been just joining the vindictive, vituperous, angry, accusatory, demonizing ranks and telling us that if we lose life as we have known it, all is lost. I may have told you before, one of the most striking moments for me at any general assembly and true confession, I've always tried not to go to too many general assemblies, usually didn't go unless I was preaching, but um, the moderator's sermon, and this wasn't PCA, this was the EPC, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, about 10, 12 years ago, the moderator's sermon was a beautiful thing. He had just gotten back from a trip to China, meeting with Chinese Christians, and he talked about the way that we here in America, all through the 50s, 60s, 70s, thought that the church in China had been destroyed. I remember as a child my parents telling me the great stories of, of uh, 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 sorry, Hudson Taylor. I was thinking Jordan, but he was uh, in another country. Hudson Taylor and those who followed in China Inland Mission, uh, now OMF, uh, the work of the great pastors there the, whose writings had come out. And then how when communism arose, the church was destroyed. And it's so tragic, this great vibrant church, broken, destroyed. And we all thought that until China began to open back up. And what did the world discover? That the church had grown faster in China than anywhere else on earth. It had exploded. There were now over 100 million professing Christians in China. And, and they were walking it out in a way that shamed us. And so he talked about this and said, isn't this marvelous, the sovereignty of God in using this suffering as he always has for his people to conform them to his image, to make the church strong. He just he celebrated it. A couple hours later, he was to give a report on the state of the church in America. It was like a different person. It was all hand-wringing. We are in a terrible situation. We could lose our freedoms. 
We could be in trouble. We could be like China. And I'm sitting out there. Now, I'm not the stuff of which martyrs are made. I mean, I love reading the stories of the martyrs while I'm eating a fresh, warm croissant just from the <laughs> oven. But, you know, I'm not longing for it, nor for my children or grandchildren. But I'm sitting out there thinking, is irony ever this exquisite? You just told us that it was the suffering that had made this the most powerful, vibrant church in church history. And the worst thing that could possibly happen to us is that we'd have to have that happen to us. Brothers and sisters, the good life in the Bible applies to us when we're eating croissants and when we're looking somehow to try to feed our families. It applies when we're filled with joy. It applies when our hearts are broken and we are saying, Lord, are you still there? Do you still hear my cry? Do you still know I'm here? This is not context specific. The good life in the Bible is for all of us. And very quickly, there are two moves that he makes. And the first, he says, if you would know the good life, here are three things that you need to factor into your life. And then he asks the astonishing question, who is there to harm you if indeed, you know, you're walking with the Lord? And they could have said, well, Nero, his, uh, you've just told us we're going to face fiery trials. Uh, other Christians have been put to death. We're afraid of the the tax collectors, the centurions, people of other religions who are really down on us because of the way the church has grown. I mean, whom do we not have to fear? But he asks, who do you have to fear? And he tells us why we don't need to be afraid. Those are the two things. Quickly, his description of the good life and then, or what we should be doing to know the good life. And then, why should we fear? First thing he says is, if you would know the good life, be careful how you speak. Verse 10, he's quoting, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. I've confessed to you before, this, every time I read texts like this, it just, it's right to me. I'm preaching to myself always, but especially now. I basically make my living talking. Um, and I thank God for what he lets me say to you here, but I also talk outside of here, and it's not always so edifying. I'm concerned about what's going on in the culture. I'm concerned about what's going on in politics because I'm so easily hooked into it. I get so angry. I want to go attack people that are holding views and promoting things that I believe are destructive. And he says, keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. And beyond that, I've confessed to you that I wish that I could remember scripture the way that I could remember every inappropriate joke I've ever been told. <laughs> and in every social situation, they immediately come to mind. It's so apropos. Let me just... You, you, you would be forgiving of all the ones that slip out if you knew how many are edited out. But he says, it starts with your mouth. Why? The word is powerful in Hebrew and in Greek, in the Old and New Testament. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
We can hold it for a while, but eventually what we really are inside comes out. And so he says, beware. Beware of the way that you speak because it's a window into your soul. It's telling you what you really love, what you really desire, what you really want. Guard your tongue. Let it be a helpful tool in monitoring what's in my heart. Do I care much for the Lord? Do I speak much of Christ? The gospel that I preach so gladly to you, am I longing to share it with people that I meet? I don't mean to make myself obnoxious. The worst thing we can do is to be like a bunch of salesmen whose product is the gospel and we can't wait to manipulate someone. No. Befriend people, love them, meet them where they are. But pray for them, come to love them so that you are longing for the opportunity when the Lord opens it authentically to speak words of life to them. Look at what you say. If you would have a good, good life. And beyond that, just, this is just good sense. I mean, Dr. Phil knows this for Pete's sake. Um, be careful how you speak to those you love. I realized years ago, early in my marriage, my youthful marriage, um, that I would say things to my wife that I would never say to a close friend. Why? Isn't this your best friend? Guard your tongue. Speak words that are life-giving. Doesn't mean we can't take principled stands against evil. It doesn't mean we can't engage in debate. But as he keeps saying, it's the way we do it. Do we do it with respect? Do we do it with honor? Do we do it with love and compassion? Secondly, be careful what you do, verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Those of you who are getting all ginned up for the political season, Thank God, I love for Christians to be involved in politics when they behave, which most of us find it hard to do these days. Um, just remember this. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And the word here, peace, is of course in the Greek, it's irene, it's, but he's quoting from the Psalms, David, and Peter, in his own language, they're speaking out of a Semitic background. The word was shalom. And it is the grandest and most glorious picture of God's redemption. Shalom is peace with God, peace with one another, health, wholeness. That's what we are to be praying, wishing, longing for those who are most opposed to us. Not their destruction, but for them to come to a place of acknowledging their brokenness and sin and crying out to the Lord and knowing the peace that he has given us. That's how we're to act. We're to be known as the people of peace. That's one of the things that just turned the Roman Empire upside down. See how these Christians love each other and it wasn't just them. They were the the surrounding people said they're profligate in their love. The Parthians love Parthians. The Scythians love Scythians. The Greeks love Greeks. 
but these people love everybody. What is wrong with them? Until they turned it upside down. Thirdly, remember, remember who's your real audience. Remember the one whom we are really to be speaking and living for. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Remember last week, those of you who were here, um, the final verse that we looked at, I said, I found it so arresting the way that, that Peter put it. He was talking to husbands, but he's, it's true for all of us. And, and I tried to capture it by saying something like this. Don't pray to live, but live to pray. In other words, most of us think of prayer as something God has given us to try to get him to do what we want so that our lives will be the way we want them to do. And thank God, he's our father, he loves us, he invites us to come with everything. But the chief purpose of prayer is relationship. It is knowing him. And for that reason, he says in that uh, last verse that we looked at, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, not pray that you live right, but live in such a way that God will not be grieved and this community with him unbroken. And that's what he's saying again here. He's saying, look, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears opened in their prayer. So when you speak and when you live, don't speak and live in a way that is going to wound that communication by grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Keep that open. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But God doesn't just do something for us in justification. He does something in us through regeneration. He is sanctifying us. He is making us more like his son. Jesus always says, come, follow me, follow me. And that's what Peter's telling us to do. Then he says, who is there to harm you? And I'm almost out of time. I'm aware of that, so I'll be quick. Now, who is there to harm you? Verse 13, if you're zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. In your hearts, honor Christ as holy. He does, I think, three things here. First tells us that we don't need to be afraid of anything that happens in the pursuit of God's purposes for us that if we are doing that, nothing can harm us, the negative. Then he turns it to the positive, secondly. You will be blessed. God will use this to bless you. And then thirdly, and we'll go on and show that when we come back to this passage, God will get glory just as he did through his son's suffering, for Christ suffered for us in order to bring us to God. And he uses our suffering to bring others to himself. That's why Paul in Colossians is able to say, I fulfill in my flesh that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Not because anything was needed to make us right with God, but it is because as we follow him and live as he lived and sometimes suffer boldly and joyfully as he suffered, God gets glory and people come to know him. Let me, if I may, just use a personal illustration. I'll try to get through it. I hate always getting emotional, but um, it is so easy for us to reach a point in life where we think we've been through the hard things and it's all good now. Um, I'd had a son far in the wilderness 
big strapping uh, Marine veteran, combat veteran, who, extreme athlete, owned his own company, lived in Asia for almost 15 years, came back, came to the Lord, God got a hold of him, he was bearing witness on Black Rifle Coffee podcasts and, you know, any, before Spartan Endurance, right? He was constantly bearing witness and people wanted to hear because he was a stud. And so now God had put everything back together for me and my family. And after his mother died, he came back. He said, Dad, I want you to be able now to be free to pursue whatever God calls you to do. And I'm going to take the family. I'll take care of those who need to be taken care of. I'll disciple those, your grandkids. I'm here. You go. You do this. And so I took my call here. I came here. And a year ago, the end of February, beginning of March, he went in for what was just supposed to be a simple procedure, a little laparoscopic procedure. He's supposed to be back at work the next day. And everything went wrong that could go wrong. And a few days later, his heart stopped for 20 minutes. And when he finally came out of a coma weeks later, he was like a baby. He didn't speak. He couldn't walk. He didn't know who he was. Couldn't remember anything. Slowly, slowly, we didn't expect him to live. Then we didn't expect him to recover. Little by little, fighting his way back by God's grace. We were, and I'm telling all that to tell this. I've gone to see him at Vanderbilt in the rehabilitation. He was starting to try to speak again, and they were trying to begin to work with him. He'd lost about 60 pounds. And I said, Lord, you don't owe me any explanations. Um, I've known nothing but grace. And the dumbest thing anybody who's a Christian can ever ask is, why me? I mean, we, we live our lives surrounded by other people going through it. It just, this time it came home to me. But I said, he was bearing such witness to you. Why this? And physical therapists came in to work with him. And they were just meeting him. And they said, you look like maybe you used to work out. And he's looking. And so I pulled out my phone, showed them a picture of him before. He was just this massive stud, powerful guy. And they went, wow, you could teach us a thing or two. And he said, that. What's that? And I showed him the picture of himself. Wondered, Lord, what's this going to do to Will he know himself? And he said, I used to be strong here, but weak in here. God let this happen so that I'd be strong in here. Nothing can harm you if you hear. Nothing. And I'm telling you, whatever you're going through, some of you have lost kids this last year. I, mean, I thought I was going to lose mine, but I can't imagine losing a child. Some of you have gone through unutterable losses and pains and hurts and suffering. But if you are in Christ and are pursuing, he's not just letting us endure it here so that we get to heaven when we die. No, he is here and now using this to make us what he wants us to be, even if it's the last thing we want to go through to become what he wants us to be. He has your good and my good and our children's good, even when horrific things happen to them. And so he says, stop being afraid. And when you get those texts from Christians telling you, oh, be afraid if this happens, realize this isn't the Lord speaking, this is the enemy. 
Fear not. Fear not. Whatever comes, fear not. Lord Jesus, thank you that you suffered beyond what we can comprehend because you suffered not just the agonies of the cross, but you suffered on your pure and innocent conscience, heaped on you the sins, the degradation, the betrayals, the lies, the adulteries, the murders of your people. You bore it all and bore it to death. You, who knew no sin, became sin so that we might become your Father's righteousness. And as we eat this meal, may we remember with deepest gratitude that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This meal does not 